All right, we're in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on His, on his right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food, and I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, as I've already touched on, there's a lot here. And taking some time to go back to prophecies in the Old Testament will help us to understand even better some of the depth of what Jesus is saying. Remember Jesus' audience. Who was Jesus primarily teaching? Jews. Don't lose sight of that fact. Keep that in mind as we look at what we're going to look at tonight. Go back to Matthew chapter 15 and look at verses 21 through 28. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 21 Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, A woman, great is your faith, be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now again, keep in mind, Jesus did do something for this Canaanite woman, and he did meet her need. We do see him going out of his way to pursue the, the woman at the well who was in Samaria. But as a whole, predominantly, Jesus' ministry was to the Jews, to the nation of Israel. Go back to Matthew chapter 10 real quick and look at again in verses 5 and 6 what he told his disciples, his apostles, when he sent them out two by two. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, he said, but, but these twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So we've got to keep in mind now that Jesus has already come, at this time of course, uh, I'm not referring to that. I'm just saying Jesus has come to the earth and he will come again to fulfill all scripture. And there are many scriptures that point to this end of the age that Jesus is referring to here in, in these last two chapters that we're looking at in Matthew 24 and 25. Do you remember this all started because Jesus turned to his disciples and he pointed out the temple and he said, there's not going to be a stone left on top of another. This, of course, got the disciples curious. They come to him privately and they say, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? If you remember from our study, 
study. He then begins to specifically lay out the tribulation period. And he talked about the birth time of the birth pains and how there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. But it's not the end just yet and so on. And then, as you know, he talks about the Antichrist stepping in the wing of the temple, declaring himself to be God. He told the Jews, run into the wilderness and don't go back into your house to get anything because it's going to get really bad on the earth. And then there's going to be signs in the sun and the moon and all this kind of stuff. And then the Son of Man is going to come in his glory with all his angels with him. And then he talked, as we looked at, about the, the parables of the guy who thought the master wasn't going to come back for a while and he wasn't ready for the master coming back sooner than he thought. And then he told the parable of the ten virgins and how we need to be ready in case it's a longer period than we thought. And then we dealt with the parable of the talents and how it doesn't really, we're not to know when he's coming back. It's not for us to know that, but we're to be ready and doing so that when he comes, he can reckon with us. And now he then lays out his coming back to set up the kingdom on the earth and how there's going to be this judgment at that time where he's going to judge the nations according to how they treated these brothers of mine. And so we're going to take some time now to go back to the Old Testament and do a deep study to kind of find out who are these brothers of mine. And I hope you realize, and it, many of us unfortunately have been taught over the years that Jesus was referring in here how he's going to determine who gets into heaven. But you do realize you don't get into heaven by giving someone a glass of water, right? You don't get into heaven by visiting somebody in prison. That's, that's a works salvation. And actually at this point, he's not talking about who gets into heaven and who gets into hell. Although there is going to be a separation of the righteous and the unrighteous. I'm going to lay out for you from the scripture that this judgment of the sheep and the goats is tied to the very end of the tribulation period where Jesus comes. It's tied to the that battle of the Armageddon and the Valley of Megiddo. You're going to see that it's actually a determination of who of the humans that survived the tribulation on the earth, who of them get to go into the kingdom to live in the kingdom and who gets sent off to hell in eternal damnation. And it's all tied to how they treated a certain group of people. Let's let the scripture speak. Because as you're about to see, go with me to Deuteronomy 32. When Jesus taught, just about every single time, it was tied to previous teaching that had been laid out for them already in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 32, though, we see a very interesting passage of scripture. If you'll notice at the end of chapter 31, there in verse 30, it, the, your, your, your Bible has a little heading there. What does it say? The Song of Moses. You're going to see that very, very important when we get to Revelation tonight. We're going to take a look at a passage in Revelation that's actually going to refer to this passage. But it's the Song of Moses. And so in verse 30 of chapter 31, Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. Now, here we have the Song of Moses starting in chapter 32, and I'm going to take some time to break it down into sections. We're going to deal with the first four verses. And in the first four verses, you're going to see that this, the song says that God is holy, he's perfect, and he's just. He's right in everything that he does. Look at what it says here. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain and my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright. Is he So as we lay out what he's going to say here in this song, and I'm going to tell you now, this song is going to give the whole history of the nation of Israel. 
God's calling them out, him blessing them, him, them rejecting him, him turning his back on them. This song's going to reference the church age here in it. And it's also going to deal with how at the end he's not going to ultimately totally wipe them off the face of the earth, the Jews, because of their rejection of him. But how he's actually going to restore them because of his promises to the, the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And how he's going to judge the rest of the world at the very end, according to, as you're going to see, how they treated Israel. Take a look. Look at verses 5 through 20. You're about to see now that in these verses, even though God blessed Israel, they rebelled and rejected him by worshiping demons. Look at verse 5. They have, this is the Israelites, have direct, dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field. And he suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock curds from the herd and milk from the flock, with fat of lambs, rams of Bashan and goats, with the, with the very finest of the wheat. And you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. But Jeshurun, this is Israel, grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. And the Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. So we've already seen at the beginning of this song, laid out for all the people of Israel, God is right and he's holy and he's just in everything he does. He blessed Israel. He set the boundaries for all the nations of the people. Interestingly enough, according to the number of the sons of God, there's debate among Bible scholars as to what are the sons of the God? Who are the sons of God? I personally lean toward this is tied to how many angels there are. Now that's going to go to something I'm going to touch on later on in our study. But as he did that, he also chose a group of people, a nation that he made for himself from the one man, Abraham. We know him as the nation of Israel. And uh, what he's done is he has chose them and revealed himself to them, and he blessed them, and he brought them into a promised land, and he blessed them in, with so much stuff, yet they became proud, they rejected him, and they began worshiping demons. And so he's decided he's going to bring judgment. Now look at verse 21. In verse 21, let me just paraphrase it for you, then we're going to read it. The Jews made God jealous by worshiping what is not God, so he's going to make Israel jealous by taking a people, us Gentiles, whom the Jews see as nothing, 
and giving the promises that he had for Israel and blessings to them for a season. Look at verse 21. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Now, if you know anything about the nation of Israel, how did they feel about the Gentiles? They, they didn't like them. They didn't want nothing to do with them. They thought we were God's chosen people. They wouldn't even go into the nation of Samaria because those were Jews who had intermarried with the Babylonians and they were half-breeds in their minds and they called them Samaritans. And they wanted nothing to do with the Gentiles and the Samaritans. The Jews thought they were the only ones that God cared for. And God says, you've gone and made me jealous by worshiping gods that aren't gods. I'm going to take a people you don't consider a people and I'm going to make you jealous. Put a bookmark here in Deuteronomy 32 and go with me to Romans chapter 11. In Romans chapter 11, Paul's dealing with this question of the fact of God's judging Israel. Is he done with Israel? And three times he asked that question in Romans 11, and three times the answer is no. But look at what he says in verse 11, Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 16. Paul says, so I ask, did they, the Jews, stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then that I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So Paul quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 21, and he said, God is taking these Gentiles and saving them to make Israel jealous. So here we see the history of Israel. God setting them apart for his purposes him blessing them, them rejecting him by worshiping foreign gods and him now taking the Gentiles, the church age, to make Israel jealous. But in the last section of Deuteronomy 32, verses 22 through 43, you're going to see that as severe as God's punishment on Israel will be, he's not going to wipe them out totally, but he will ultimately judge all of the nations that rejected him and went against his people Israel. Look at what it says in verse 22. For a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol. It devours the earth and its increase, and it sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap disasters upon them. I'll send my arrows upon them and they shall be wasted with hunger by, and devoured by plague and poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of the beasts against them with the venom of the things that crawl in the dust. Outdoors the sword shall bereave and indoors terror for young man and woman alike, the nursing child with the man of gray hairs. I would have said, I will cut them to pieces. I will wipe them from human memory. Had I not feared provocation by the enemy lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, our hand is triumphant. It was not the Lord who did this. For they are a nation void of counsel, and there is no understanding in them. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. How could one have chased a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight, unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? For their rock is not as our rock, 
Our enemies are by, by themselves, for their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison, and their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of asps. Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine, and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. Listen closely. For the Lord will vindicate his people, this is the Jews, and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. Then he will say, where are their gods? The rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering. Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges, avenges the blood of his children, and he takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. So let me just remind you again of what we've looked at here in Deuteronomy 32 in the Song of Moses. In the first four verses, God's holy and perfect and just in everything that he's done and everything he does. Even though God blessed Israel, they rebelled and rejected him by worshiping demons. They made God jealous by worshiping what is not God. So he will make Israel jealous by taking a people, the Gentiles, whom the Jews see as nothing and giving their promises and blessings to them for a season. Yet as severe as God's punishment on Israel will be, he will not wipe them out totally, but he will ultimately judge all of the nations that rejected him and went against his people, Israel. Now, we don't have time tonight for me to go back and remind you of what we looked at when we studied Ezekiel. But if you remember when we studied Ezekiel, we looked at God's judgment on the nations. And if you remember, most of the time when God was judging the nations and the prophecies about the last days and how he's going to judge the nations, it was how he was remembering how they treated Israel. Do you remember how he told about the Edomites and how Edom's going to get it in the end because God wanted the nation of Israel to pass through their land, but the Edomites wouldn't let them and they actually helped the enemies attack Israel. And God said, I've been keeping track and I've remembered how you guys treated Israel during that time. And in the last days, I'm going to judge Edom because of that. That. Actually, we've seen in our study of the scriptures that God did use the Babylonians and he did use the Assyrians to bring judgment on the people of Israel for his purposes. They were his instruments of judgment on Israel. Yet at the same time, the prophecies also said that God's still going to judge Babylon and Assyria for what they did to Israel at that time, even though they were his instruments. They had a choice of whether or not they were going to do what they did. And God's going to judge them because how they treated Israel. And actually, I don't have the time to walk you through it. There's other prophecies that say God actually is not only going to judge them for what they did to Israel, even though they were his instruments at the time. They went beyond what he wanted them to do, and he's going to really get them for that. Listen, even though God judged Israel and has judged Israel and is still judging Israel, he's going to, because of his promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, fulfill those promises to have Israel be given that land, all of it in the final days. And he's been keeping track of 
all the nations that have come against Israel during this time. Don't lose sight of that. You're going to see tonight as we take a look at some more Old Testament prophecies that God's keeping track of every nation and how they've treated Israel. Go with me to Joel chapter 2. And by the way, is God going to redeem and restore Israel because they've earned it? No, they actually are more guilty than any other nation because of all the light they've received, because of the promises, the covenants, the sacrifices, the, the revealing of God's law and his word, his, his visiting them with fire at, at night and pillar of cloud in the day and all the things that he's done. They've had more light. But all through the scriptures, God says over and over, for my own name's sake, I'm going to do this, not because of you, but because of my own name's sake. And in Malachi chapter three, God makes this statement to Israel. He said, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O Israel, are not destroyed. The only reason Israel's still around and will be blessed in the end is because of God has made promises. And like we read in Deuteronomy 32, God said, I would have wiped them out. Yet my enemies would all said that he wasn't able to finish what he started. And because I'm going to keep my word and I care about my glory, Israel will be redeemed in the end. But look at Joel chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. We saw at the end of Deuteronomy 32 in the Song of Moses how he's going to cleanse his land. Look at verse 30, 18 of chapter 2 of Joel. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Let me stop real quick before you go any further. Has this happened yet? No. Israel is still a reproach among the nations. I don't know if many of you have even read it, but there was an article that came out this week about how anti-Semitism anti is actually increasing right now in Germany and in parts of the globe. Israel is still a reproach among the nations. This prophecy is yet to be fulfilled, but listen to what it says. Verse 20, I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into the par a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit and the fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain. The early and the latter rain is before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain and the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper and the destroyer and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. So this is still coming. Jump down to verse 30. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape. As the Lord has said, among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls for behold, verse, chapter 3, verse 1, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, 
I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, that's the valley of Megiddo, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage. Who? Israel. Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. Whoa. I don't care which side of the aisle you guys sit on, whether it's Republican or Democrat. If you're honest, both sides of the aisle in our history have been telling Israel to divide the land for peace. And God is keeping track. And at the end of the tribulation period, did that not read like the end of the tribulation period? The blood and the fire and columns of smoke and turn the sun dark and the moon to blood before the awesome day of the Lord. We've seen this all happening in the seven seals in the tribulation period. At the end of the tribulation period, you're going to see, turn with me to Revelation chapter 16. In Revelation chapter 16, you're going to see that at the very end of the tribulation period, during the seven last plagues, that God is going to use these demons to gather all of the nations to the valley of Jehoshaphat to gather for war against Jesus when he comes back to the earth. Look at chapter 16 of Revelation, starting in verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling uh, the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the sores, sorry, who, who bore the mark of the beast and that worshiped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. Imagine the smell of that. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. They have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed, allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom, and was, it was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the king from the east and I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. So here we see that during the last Seven plagues that are going to be passed out, poured out on the earth at the very end of the tribulation period. A part of that is going to be a gathering of the nations in the valley of Jehoshaphat to gather against Jesus. But go back to Revelation 15. Have you all noticed, by the way, all through chapter 16 as God's bringing these horrific judgments on the earth. Everybody's response that's righteous is you're right in doing it. You're just. You're holy. You're not making any mistakes here. It's interesting. The angel in charge of the waters 
whose responsibility has been to take care of the seas and the rivers, when all that he's been guarding and taking care of is now being turned to blood, the angel goes, you're right in doing it. Now, I'm going to just chase a rabbit real quick, and then we'll get to chapter 15. For years, I've had people ask me this question, Jim, I'm struggling with how it can be heaven for me if I know that my loved one isn't there. If I'm in heaven, but my loved one is not, how can it be heaven if I know I'm there, but my other one's in hell? Let me point out two things to you from Scripture that will help you, hopefully. One is this. Actually, I believe the Bible teaches that when we get to the eternal state, the last time period, if you will, there's the tribulation period still yet to come, the millennial kingdom where Jesus rules and reigns on the earth for a thousand years. At the end of that becomes the new heaven and the new earth where we'll spend eternity with God. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17, you can double check me and see it. In Isaiah 65, verse 17, listen to what it says. It said that the Former things, behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth, and the former, th former things will not be remembered nor even come to mind. So when we get to the eternal state, you won't even notice that those people aren't there. But secondly, during this time of judgment of the tribulation, the millennial kingdom, I believe that those of us who have been given righteousness, who are entering into the kingdom, will have an attitude just like the angels in which even if we see our loved ones being judged because of their rejection, our attitude will be, you're right in doing this, God. You're holy. And you've given them opportunity. You've revealed yourself to them. You've given them lots of opportunity. And they've chosen to reject you. You're right in doing so. Look at chapter 15 now. Look at verses 1 and following. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways. King, O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Let me ask you this question. What song are they singing when all this that I just talked to you about begins to happen? They're singing the song of Moses from Deuteronomy 32, where God lays out the whole history. And they said, you're right in doing this. You're holy in judging the nations. Go back with me to Joel chapter 3. And then we're going to go back and reread Matthew 25. In Joel chapter 3, look at verses 9 through 21. Joel chapter 3, look at verse 9. Proclaim... This among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come where? To the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in 
Tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to who? His people, a stronghold to who? The people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip with sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord. That's the new temple that's going to be built and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to who? Is Judah, the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged for the Lord dwells in Zion. Go back with me now to Matthew 25. Let's reread the parable of the sheep and the goats. See, for years we've been taught that the church was the center of everything. And we've been trying to read the New Testament with the church as the focus. But remember, Jesus' teaching here, in Matthew especially, is to the Jews and to nations about the specialness of Israel. When the Son of Man comes, verse 31, in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne and before Him will be gathered all the nations and He'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and He'll place the sheep on His right but the goats on the left then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Who, who are my brothers now? It's Israel, the Jews. It's pretty clear who the brothers are now. Let me just stop this real quick and just remind you. You remember back during the Holocaust when there were people that were protecting the Jews from, from the Germans? Remember the hiding place in Cory Ten Boom and those type of stories? As things continue to get worse in this world, God's keeping track of individuals in the nations who are going to be pro-Israel. He's going to judge all the nations, but these are the individuals in the nations according to how they treated Israel. And I'm going to tell you, pray that our country stays pro-Israel, but even if we don't, you stay that way. You stay that way and you pass that attitude on. Because I believe when this judgment comes, where Jesus comes and sets up his throne on the earth, we'll already have been taken to be with him. We'll already have received our reward. We will come with him to rule and reign with him during this time of the millennial kingdom. But there's going to be humans who survive the tribulation period. And those that survive are going to be judged by Jesus on this throne. And those who were taking care of the Israelites during this time when everybody in the world was against them are going to be given righteousness. Now, chances are, if they're pro-Israel during this time, it's because they're pro-God. You know, and the only way they'll have insight to be pro-Israel is because they'll know the scriptures and they'll believe them and they'll be at, enter into the kingdom. But those who aren't 
are going to be judged. So what I want to do in the time that we have left here is I want to just kind of pull out a couple of things from this parable of the sheep and the goats that I think will be valuable for us. Look at verse 31 again. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Let me ask you a question. Where is this throne? Is it going to be on the earth or is it going to be in heaven? I'm sorry? It's going to be on the earth. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels come with Him, He's going to sit on His throne. See, a lot of us have been taught that there is no millennial kingdom. Jesus is going to come, gather his church, gather his righteous and go back. But as you're about to see from the prophecies, the scripture clearly says that Jesus' throne is going to be on the earth. Let me show you what I mean. Go to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, look at verses 24 through 27. In Matthew 16, verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father. And then he will repay each person according to what he's done. So we see again, Jesus is going to come back to the earth. Go to Matthew 19. Look at verses 23 through 28. In Matthew 19, verses 23 through 28. Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will the rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne... You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So he's going to come and sit on his throne. And where did we read in the book of Joel that when God sits on his throne and judges the nations, where is he going to be sitting according to the prophecy in Joel? On earth. On earth but where? It says specifically where? From Jerusalem. He's going to be ruling from Jerusalem. He's going to be sitting on his throne in Jerusalem. I'll give you one more. Go to Luke chapter 1. You're going to see this prophecy as your preachers preach on it at Christmas time. Let me make a little commercial too for those of you that go here to LifePoint. I just found out today that I'm going to have the privilege of preaching to LifePoint, not this coming Sunday, but the Sunday after that, the 13th. So I'm going to be preaching here at this church if you're interested in coming uh, that Sunday. But in the Christmas messages that are coming up, look at Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 33. In Luke 1, verse 26, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. So God's going to give Jesus the throne of who? 
David. Let me ask you a question. Where's David's throne? Definitely on the earth. David's throne's not in heaven. God's throne's in heaven. David's throne was on the earth. And Jesus is going to be given the throne to David, which is going to be on the earth in Jerusalem. Joel 2 said he's going to be sitting on his throne in Jerusalem and judging the nations. Jesus himself said he's going to come with his angels and he's going to set up his throne. This is the beginning of the millennial kingdom. And this judgment is at the end of the tribulation period determining who enters the kingdom for the millennial kingdom. It's not tied to the church. Does the Bible teach that we in the church should care for people and meet people's needs? Without question, the Bible teaches we should be doing that. But that's not how we get into heaven. But that's how God is going to determine at the end of the tribulation period of the humans that survive the tribulation period, which ones get into the kingdom. Because remember, there's still going to have to be humans that survive to make it into the kingdom because they're the ones that are going to be making babies during the millennial kingdom. And if you've ever done any study about the millennial kingdom, Isaiah 65 in verses 18 and following talks about it. In Isaiah 65, we see that in verse 18 and following, as it describes the millennial kingdom, it says that during that time, people are going to live a long, long time, not like they are now, but actually back in earlier times in the Bible when people lived eight, nine hundred years long. He, the Bible actually says in Isaiah 65 that if during the millennial kingdom, if someone dies at 100 years old, they'll be considered an infant or accursed. People are going to live a long time. They're going to be having, it's going to be a great time. People are going to be making babies left and right. And those babies are going to be the ones who are going to be tempted by Satan when he's released from the pit after the thousand years. And they're going to come after Jesus and he's going to wipe them out. And then the new heaven, the new earth and the eternal state begins. But let me point out two other things real quickly as we close tonight from Matthew 25 that are very, very important for us. Go to Matthew 25 and look at verse uh, 34. As he separates the sheep and the goats, we're going to see him describe the kingdom or heaven and hell in two very profound ways. Look at verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. According to what Jesus says here, God's plan of the kingdom and the eternal state was planned before what? Before he even made the world. Let me, let me just say something to you. Uh, there are some Bible scholars that don't agree with me on this, but that's okay. I, I'm not, I, I, I don't share with you unless I've prayed over it and studied it deeply. But I strongly believe that Satan's rebellion happened before anything that we see written here in the scriptures. Now, some people have said, Jim, wait a minute. It says in Genesis that God saw all that he had made and it was good. So Satan couldn't have rebelled yet. I say, stop for a second. Couple of things. One, Colossians chapter one tells us that God made everything that's visible and invisible. In Genesis chapter one and chapter two, we only see the, the, the account of what was visible of creation. And Job actually tells us when God shows up and starts talking to Job and he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth and all the morning stars, all the angels celebrated? The Bible teaches us the angels existed prior to the creation of the world. Personally, and I have other scriptural backing for this. I actually believe that Satan's rebellion happened before God made everything that we see. And that what we see here has been created by God for a season to display his glory to the angels who rebelled. And to the angels that didn't rebel. 
You go and look at Ephesians chapter 3 and look at verse 10. The scripture actually says that God's intent is that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known, be made known to the spiritual authorities in the heavenly realms. We've all been taught, which, correctly so, in Matthew chapter 5, that we're to do our good deeds before men, that they see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. And we think that we're on a stage with the world to see us. Yes, but I'm going to tell you, you're on a bigger stage. Because God's plan has always been to reveal himself to the angels who rebelled his glory. And what he's done is he's created a people lower than the angels. The Bible says we were created lower than the angels. And then he's allowed Satan, who had already rebelled. You say, wait a minute, how do you know he had already rebelled? Well, the book of 1 John, I think it's chapter 5, the scripture says that Satan has been sinning from the beginning. Whoop, stop for a second. We know from the, the prophecies in Ezekiel and Isaiah that Satan at one time was created in perfection. He was a cherubim. He was in the presence of God. How could he have been sinning from the beginning? At one point, he was perfect. So he had to have been sinning from the beginning of something, not the beginning of his creation. I think he's been sinning from the beginning of everything we know as time and space. Satan's rebellion happens before this. God then creates this universe and this world, and he says, I'm going to create some people lower than you. I'm going to put them on this planet. I'm going to let you go down and infect them with your attitude. And then I'm going to go down and I'm going to die for them. And I'm going to let them choose. And then the Bible says those who choose to follow Satan become his followers and they go where he's going to go. We'll get to that in a second. And those who choose to worship God and say, even if he slay me, yet will I trust God. Even though everything in my flesh wants to follow Satan, everything in the world is pulling me away from God. And I still believe because of what God has done through Jesus that he is good, that everything he does is right, and I'm going to give him my life. And the Bible says that when we humble ourselves and let God do with us whatever he wishes, one day we're going to judge the angels. Oh, and doesn't the book of 1 Peter say that the angels long to look into this relationship that we've been given? Folks, this eternal life, this kingdom that's going to be on the earth and the eternal state was prepared before the foundation of the world. In the book of Revelation, chapter 20 describes Jesus as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. This has all been in God's plan before the foundation of the world. But look at verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Let me ask you another question. Hell, was it created for humans? No. It was created for who? For Satan and his angels. Remember, God knew, because this rebellion happened before the foundation of the world, that he had created a place for them to be judged for eternally. But he also has given us an opportunity to choose. And if we choose to follow Satan, we become come of his followers. Well, didn't Jesus tell the Jews and tell the, the people on the earth, your father is the devil? Go to Revelation chapter 20. We know that at the end of chapter 19, when Jesus comes, he's going to take the, the beast, which is the Antichrist, and the false prophet. These are two human beings. One of them has been indwelt by Satan himself. But he's going to take these human beings and he's going to throw them alive. They don't even die. They're thrown alive into the lake of fire. And look at Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. And the devil, this is at the end of the thousand years, at the end of him being released just for a short season. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night for how long? Forever and ever. 
Go to Matthew chapter 25. Look again at verse 46. In verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let me just say something to you, folks. There's a lot of Christians that unfortunately have been taught, even by preachers, that if hell exists, God is so loving, he wouldn't cause someone to be punished for eternity in hell. So there comes a point where you'll be extinguished. And I know of preachers in this local area that have taught this. I actually have the recordings of them actually teaching this. And I know some of you maybe in this room or listening online have struggled with the whole idea of hell being forever and ever, a torment forever and ever. But doesn't Jesus describe hell as the place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched? What, let me ask you a question. Um, those of us who have been given eternal life, do you believe that you're going to live forever and ever in your eternal life? Well, didn't he use the same word? Eternal punishment. Just like we have eternal life, there are going to be people that are going to live forever and ever in eternal punishment. Even though it's hard for us to conceptualize forever. Exactly. <laughs> terminal beings. Exactly. It's hard for us to grasp it, but at the same time, it's going to continue. Now, people that struggle with that, the best way I can help you with this is this. The Bible says that if you reject God's only way to have you pay for your sins with someone else paying for it besides you, if you reject that, you have to pay for your own sins. And if we're unable to ever pay for it, you'll be paying for it forever. And that's why hell's eternal. Oh, and folks, it wasn't created for you. It was created for Satan and his followers before the foundation of the world. Actually, some of the angels that left their first position early in the time in Genesis chapter 6 have been put in a place of torment. And they're held until the final end. And God had created for them, but he's done everything in his power to keep humans from going there. Yes, and he's done everything to keep you from going. He's paid for your sin. He sent his son. He's using other believers. He's using creation. He's using his spirit. He's calling to you over and over. If you go to hell, it's because you chose there. And don't let any cartoon or anybody tell you that Satan's going to rule and reign in hell. And don't let anybody say, I don't care. I'd rather go to hell where I can party with my friends. It's an eternal punishment where Satan himself is going to be tormented day and night forever and ever. And all those who reject Christ are going to be there with him. This has all been laid out by God ahead of time. It's been predetermined how. The who, though, we still get to choose. And I tell you, in the time that we have left, because the time is short, his return and the, the gathering of his church in the, in the rapture, the tribulation period that the stages are being set for and many other prophecies that are lining up for that. This judgment that's coming on the world and the eternal kingdom, it's coming close. And folks, let me just say this to you in love. As much as eternal life is eternal, eternal punishment is eternal. Pray for your family. Share the gospel with them. Pray that God would put other people in their lives. And at the same time, be praying that God would show you how. Maybe giving to some ministries that take care of the Jews during this time period that's happening now and coming up. Have a heart for people of Israel. Pray for the people of Israel. Because I think selfishly there's another benefit to us praying for Israel. You see, God put the Israelites on hold for a season and he began to draw the Gentiles. And the Bible actually says that when the church age comes to a close, he's going to gather us and he's going to finish what he started with Israel. Well, how neat would it be if Christians started praying right now for God to do a work 
with the Jews. And we get to go home. And then he can finish what he started with Israel. Pray for God to work among the Jews. They're going to go through it for a period, but they will be restored and redeemed, those who survive, those who turn to him. And then all the nations will be judged according to how they treated Israel. I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.